Hey, everyone. Welcome to this special episode of Angle on Producers, where I interview no one, and it's just me talking mostly to myself, or really to you, because hopefully you're listening and in dialogue with me, though you can't respond in real time. Um, I have been away, as you guys may have seen from my newsletter, which, by the way, if you don't subscribe yet, please do. I'm really dedicated to being consistent with it, having it come into your inbox once a week, very short and sweet and just sending you some ideas, suggestions, things that are um, resonating for me, things I've watched, things I've read that I think are going to spark something for you. And eventually want to get to producer tips and want to get to answering more listener questions. I get so many DMs and emails. And frankly, it's just so hard to answer everyone's questions all the time. And this knowledge is not publicly out there. You know, you only get it by asking. So being able to share those answers with the rest of our community, I think would be so tremendous for all of us. And it's part of why I wanted to do this episode. I wanted to just answer some of your questions, give you some updates on my life and the show and where things are headed. And also in light of this week being a sort of tumultuous week in the business, I mean, it's been sort of up and down. If you're in it, you kind of know. But I would say this week, especially there's a really palpable anxiety and fear in the air as, you know, today is April 24th and today was a big round of Disney layoffs. Over 7,000 people are getting laid off. Of course, a lot of them are Latino execs and people of color. It's just a very tricky time to navigate. And then, of course, we're on the heels of the last week of negotiations between the Writers Guild and the studios to come to an agreement um, on the terms that they're asking for. And if that is not reached by May 1st, which is Monday of this upcoming week, then there will be a strike. Um, There's an overwhelming amount of votes, 98% authorization to strike. So the longer it is, obviously, the more detrimental it is to our business as a whole, but also to the city of Los Angeles. You know, the amount of people in tangential businesses that rely on production in Hollywood to be up and running uh, is is astonishing if you really look at the numbers and it will impact a lot of people sort of like a domino effect right the longer it goes. Yeah, so, you know, staying optimistic there. And so one of the things I wanted to do is um, you'll hear later um, in the convo here, I just hopped off with this lovely writer named Victor Duenas, who is a strike captain for the Guild, who breaks down for us, like, what are the main issues? What is being negotiated? What is at stake for the writer's why the strike is necessary, why this particular negotiation is necessary. What happens if these issues don't get solved? Because it's been challenging with my schedule to get guests and to be consistent, I wanted to just take this opportunity to hop on. It's something I've been wanting to do, frankly, for a long time, but sometimes feels a bit silly to just sit here and and not talk to a person who's like in the room, you know, just talking to you guys who are listening, but like I said, can't respond. It's kind of like the sixth sense, you know? Like you see dead people, like I'm the dead person that you guys see, right? (laughs) Um, But yeah, so updates. Okay, so I was out all of March, uh, as you guys may have noticed. I had a really incredible time getting married and then being on my honeymoon. It was the most magical three weeks of my life. It was everything I could have hoped for and more. My husband, my now husband, it's so fun to say still, he's also in the business. He's actually a television producer. He is a talk show producer for The Talk on CBS. And I actually am going to do an episode where I interview him because that world is so different from any of the world's I've come up in and certainly a very separate set of networks and contacts. It's fascinating. Like 
we actually met on a dating app. And when we matched, it was crazy how we had no mutual professional contacts because the networks are just so different. And so I think it would be really fun to have him on and hear about what he does and his experiences. And certainly I'm biased because I married him. I think he's pretty great. <laughs> um, so yeah, that'll be an episode I want to do for you guys. And you know, I'm in a season of transition, not going to lie. Um, I was impacted by the layoffs that are happening. My role was decommissioned and was cut. And so I've been trying to figure out what's next for me. It does create a little more space to do this again and to kind of be a little more engaged with the show, which I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, I'm actually going to be bringing on an associate producer to work with me and help me for these next few months, just really put some good energy into the show and get more episodes out. Um, I eventually want to do live gatherings. One of my dreams is to do like a dinner where we can all gather, um, you know, and meet each other. And eventually I'd love to raise money so I can give micro grants to producers who are listening, anyone navigating their path who just needs that boost. Like these are my dreams and hopes for the show. And I, I think it's all possible, but where it's always bottlenecked, frankly, is as you guys may have noticed, I don't really take sponsors or do ads. I've I've dabbled in it, but I've always been very intentional about who I'm partnering with. And so, you know, I'm at this junction point where for me to grow the show, I need money, frankly. I need to raise some funds so I can do all of these cool things I want to do so the show can grow beyond this audio only community um, and just go exist in three dimensional spaces so we can gather and the show has power to do so much more and reach so many more people and help so many more people, um, which was always my intention of why I started this. So if you're listening and you have any ideas um, on what that could look like, if you have brands or sponsors or anyone that you think would be down to support me and our community, definitely hit me up. Let me know. Um, the email that we we created an email we've been using, it's angle on producers podcast at gmail.com. So drop me a line because we're always monitoring and open to any ideas. So yes, big season of transition. It's a challenging week for many. It's been a challenging couple of weeks. But look, I'm I'm choosing to stay optimistic. I'm choosing to believe in the path of abundance instead of the path of fear. I'm just trying to not get lost in all of it and just keep my head above water, you know? So if you're out there listening and this is also your reality right now, just know that you're not alone. A lot of people are going through this. Um, there is a lovely woman whom I'm, I'm obsessed with who had been, has been on the show. Her name is Laverne McKinnon. She's an incredible producer. Um, I'll link that episode if anybody wants to listen to it. It's from two years ago at this point. But she's a producer and also a professional development coach. And she works particularly with people in the industry on goal setting and, and all this stuff. And I've done some really amazing work with her. But she also has coined this term called disenfranchised grief, which helps people navigate professional grief, professional loss, the loss of relationships, of projects, of jobs, right? Our culture is already shy about navigating grief. But then you compound that by this capitalistic society where our value system is to work hard and just hustle and hustle and grind it. And, you know, the busier you are, the more your value it seems to matter. But then when when that identity is questioned or goes away, when you have like a loss of a job or a loss of a big relationship or whatever that is for you, there's no protocols for how to handle that. You know, there's no rituals for how to heal from that. And I think a lot of people just have to like sweep it under the rug and keep a smile on your face and just project confidence, fake it till you make it, all of that, which you guys know I hate that saying, just to keep going. And I, I so 
I'm I'm now in that boat. And so I, I commend her for having coined this term and giving us space to understand that it is perfectly normal to grieve these particular aspects of our lives that matter so much and take up so much space in our lives. But then once they're removed, you're just supposed to move on, you know? So if you're out there, like I said, challenged with this, um, definitely look her up, hit her up. She's just incredible um, and has a lot of resources for you. There's also a couple books she recommended. I'm happy to share those if it's of interest to anyone. So, you know, you're just going to get through it, guys. We got this. So I wanted to, okay, I wanted to switch gears and just dive into some questions. Like I said, I get so many questions and I'm like, I'd love to answer this on the podcast sometime. And then that time never comes. I try to keep episodes pretty short. So it never, we never quite have the time, but now we have the time. So first question I want to tackle is from a listener named Shannon Hutchinson, gave me permission to share her name. And she's asking a question specifically for line producers. So she said, I'm trying to get there, but I'm not sure of the path. It seems like working up to be a production coordinator doesn't necessarily get you to the point to be promoted to a production manager or line producer. Like it's almost like a different department. I'm thinking a better path might be becoming a line producer's assistant for a few years until they promote me and then some until they promote me somewhere and then get the chance to be the line producer. What is the best way to start independent? And that is such a great question. That is loaded and of course as you may guess has a million potential variations of the answer it is not clear cut you know that's what makes it so unfortunate and frustrating but also exciting because it means you can carve out whatever lane for yourself like there are people who start out as accountants and go on to become producers you know like there's really no one way to do it so I always say look at where you are and what is accessible to you right now. What are those opportunities that are easy to leapfrog to and from? And if that is already in your path, right? Is it maybe working the coordinator path to work a certain way up that that side of the production office? Or do you have a really cool opportunity to go assist a line producer? Or do you have an opportunity to assist a producer, right? So like, whatever that entry point is, I say lean in and make the best of it. But every so often, zoom out, make sure the path is taking you where you want to go. Because one thing I've learned is that when you're really good at something, right, when you're a really great assistant to someone or a great production manager or an incredible coordinator, no one wants to lose you. So oftentimes the lack of promoting people is because you do such a good job for them that they, it's like you to remove you or to promote you now creates a hole that they need to fill. And because production can move so fast, sometimes it's not in the best interest of the people at the top. And I know that sounds kind of... shitty to say but when you become that line producer or that producer who has a great team under you you'll understand what I'm talking about I think there's a a couple of different ways you can go about this I think that you can absolutely work the coordinator PM role if you're working in a very traditional studio system big union shows it will be much harder for you to leapfrog across the different aisles because of the unions right like a production coordinator is an IATSE position, whereas a production manager can be DGA, but it can also be non-union. A line producer has no unions. But if the studio is putting that show together, you bet they're going to bring someone that they trust to oversee that project. So where you can have more mobility in the different you know lanes that you're swimming in is in the independent film scene. Because oftentimes, you can go do a project where they don't have the budget for a proper 
line producer or UPM, and they're going to entrust you to do that job. And you're going to get a big opportunity to step up. But you may have to do that job while you're still doing the coordinator's job too. So you'll wear a lot of different hats at the same time, but you're going to get experience that's invaluable that you won't get if you're you know, on a network show where you're the coordinator and there's a very clear delineation between what they do and what the APOC does. And it's everything has a lot more structure. And again, that's not for everybody. Like coming up the indie way, it's it's a lot of grind, you know. But if you are cut out for it, I think it's one way that you can fast track yourself to becoming a line producer. If you do choose to go the path, say, of a little bit more stability, you go up being a coordinator, you eventually want to work your way up to line produce, go be producing things on the side. Go do shorts for friends where you line produce those shorts. Go get that experience under your belt so that when that opportunity comes, you have already, already a pretty good baseline understanding of what it is to do that job, not just having seen your boss or someone else above you do that job, but you've done it. Even if it's on a small, small scale, it still is applicable and a foundational building block to where you want to go. I could literally talk about this forever. So out of respect for keeping this short, I, I think and hope that that gives you some clarity to that that question and certainly encourage you to ask other line producers and other people in your network what they would say, because they may have a different answer that's more aligned with the opportunities that are already in your corner. So I encourage you to, to check that out. So this question came a while ago, and I don't know who it came from, but I wanted to answer it here anyway. It's what are your biggest don'ts for someone who's trying to break into the industry and work as a producer? So I've listed a few of them out. First one, don't get yourself into insane debt. Like, yes, you have to bet on yourself. Yes, you may have to finance a few things and projects and and things that you want to do. But make sure you're making smart financial decisions and that you're not putting down your credit card to go finance someone else's short and then you blink and you're $30,000 in debt. Like this has happened to people. There's always ways to get money for projects that doesn't have to come out of your pocket. In fact, don't ever put your own money of that amount into projects. And um, I, of course, there's always exceptions to the rule and you should do whatever is best for you. But just always find a different way first. Make sure you've exhausted every opportunity before that is the option that you have. Because trust me, that'll sour you real quick. Second one is don't waste time with people in projects that are so far out of alignment with what you ultimately want to be doing, right? Yes, we all have to start somewhere. And in the beginning, you may get handed a bunch of opportunities to do things that you don't really want to do, but you're going to learn the foundations. But eventually, you have to pause and reflect and ask yourself, is this the direction I want to be headed? Because no one's going to do it for you. And if you're not careful, Like I was saying earlier, you know, Hollywood will keep you very busy doing things you don't love because it helps someone else. It makes their job easier. So just make sure whatever that looks like for you every six months, uh, every quarter, whatever, take inventory of where things are headed and make sure it's where you want to go. You're in the driver's seat of your career. The third is don't harass people. I know this sounds kind of obvious, but harassment, I I mean more in like, If you find someone on social media, if you find their email, if you want to meet them, tweet and LinkedIn messages, it's just like being bombarded with certain people. That is not going to be a good first impression for you. Remember, this is a relationship business and your value is in your network. And so 
building those relationships authentically just takes time. Like you can go to as million network events as you want, but to build the kind of relationships with people where you're going to be able to pick up a phone or send someone an email and they're going to be like, oh yeah, like it just takes the time that it takes. And so just make sure you're not harassing people. And on that note, don't be rude or pushy. You know, if someone gives you a no, take it with grace. Certainly there's, you know, a way to follow up sometime later, but just be mindful of how you're presenting yourself because it's a small business. And as you elevate where you are in your station in this career, people will remember these things, you know, your name, especially if you have a very memorable name, someone could be like, oh yeah, that person, why do I know them? Then they go in their inbox and see that you email them in 2007, 18 times. You know what I mean? Like, why do that? Don't do that. Just make a good first impression. Be a good human. Pretend you're on the other side. How would you want to be treated? On that note, don't take things personally. So easy to say, insanely hard to do. Um, This business is a mixed mash of personal and, and business all the time. It's really hard. This one's really hard, but you have to be able to separate. You have to be able to, if you get that no or someone can't meet for coffee or whatever that is, you have to just say, okay, they're just busy. It's not about me. I'm gonna see, hey, no worries, you're busy right now. Is there a better time when I can reach out? I'll make a note in my calendar and do that then. They'll appreciate that. They'll say, actually, yes, in August, I'll have a month, I'll be in LA or I'll be done with production in September. Make a note to reach out the month before. Hey, remember me, you said you were gonna be in LA at this time or available the month of September. So I just wanted to check if now is maybe a better time for that phone call, for that coffee. So please let me know, right? People will respect that. And having a system for yourself to stay organized and remember to follow up on these things, that's going to be key. So I highly recommend investing in some tools. They don't have to cost actual money, but having a system that works for you to be able to stay on top of these things um, as you elevate in your career. And then the last, you know, don't stop trying. Don't give up. If you want to be in this business, it takes time to build the relationships, to build the career of the kinds of people where you Google them or you see them on IG and you go, wow, I want to do that. Just to remember every time you have those feelings or thoughts, just assume it took that person minimum 10 years and then look at your own timeline, right? Because we all we all fall prey to the idea of self-comparison. So just remember where you are in your own timeline and go, wow, okay, I'm only at year three. So I have seven years left to go before I am in the same place, hypothetically, right? Everybody's journey is different. And hey, if you get there sooner, hit me up. Let me know because if you found some secret passageway that many don't, but that was advice that was given to me when I first moved out to LA. And I remember feeling like this is the most ridiculous thing ever. This is not true. I'm gonna prove it to you. I'm gonna do it in less than that. You know, I just had this very like, hi, I'll show them. And it was true. It was actually true. You know, by the time I had autism and love come out, which was in 2015. I had been in Los Angeles since 2006, grinding it out. I had been working my way up as a producer, not making a lot of money, doing a lot of things for free while working part-time jobs to sustain myself so that those opportunities could align. So it did take about 10 years for that to manifest for me as well. Now I'm at a place where people look to that success and think, wow, like, 
this is all just happening to you now, right? But there was a decade of seed planting, of hustle, of follow-ups, of being kind, of making a name for myself, like literally just working on sets. Um, And so now all of that has been a foundation for where I am in this next chapter of my career. That was just my path. That may not be your path. It doesn't matter. As long as you're consistent, you don't give up on yourself. You don't stop trying. Be a person of integrity. Be a good worker. Be a hard worker. That's the secret, guys. That's literally all it is. And when you're consistent enough, people go, damn, you're still here? All right, I guess we'll work with you. I guess we'll give you a chance. And that's why you go, oh, Hollywood is a small business. Yes, because a lot of people give up and they leave. And so it's almost like survival of the fittest out here, y'all. You know, it's crazy. So I hope that was helpful. All right, so this last question, I'm just doing three questions. This was actually asked by Nina Kajar, who is the lovely woman who's been behind the scenes helping me and a tremendous force to the podcast. She was one of those incredible people that reached out to me with one of the best crafted cold emails I've ever received because she was looking to transition into Hollywood from a career in politics and wanted advice on how she would do that and asked if I needed help. And I was like, wow, that's a really great way to make a first impression clearly a professional, clearly someone who knows how to navigate talking to people she doesn't know, but also is down to help. And I took her up on it. I said, well, if you want to help me with the podcast, I'll help you in exchange in whatever ways I can, you know, and I feel like it's been, I can't speak for her. I'll speak for myself, but an incredible trade. And I'm so lucky to have had her time and energy and devotion to the show these past months, like truly could not have kept it going without her. So while I am a one woman band and this show has been a labor of love, I've done mostly solo for the majority of the four years I've done the show. There's been sprinkles of incredible women like Nina who've been placed in my path and who have volunteered and given me help and just positive energy and momentum and an injection of energy when I really needed it, frankly. So I'm just grateful to her. Hopefully she'll listen to this. But so her question was, in the spirit of Angle on Producers, when is a time that you took a chance on yourself and had no idea if it was going to work out? Um, I think what really comes up for me here, the first thing that comes to mind, certainly there's a lot of examples, but the one that was the most marking and really shifted the course of my career is when I decided to start producing, frankly. It was May of 2010, and I put on a show called Spike Heels. If you've listened to me ramble on about my path, I always tell the story about the show and how it changed things. But, you know, I had come off three, four years of frustration in LA and not really able to being able to get the traction I wanted. There was a writer's strike. There was an, a, in the financial crisis. And I was ready to move back home. Honestly, I was so demoralized. And this was at a time in the business where people could say, oh, you're ethnically ambiguous. And we don't know what to do with you. And you're Brazilian, but you don't speak Spanish well enough, or you're not Mexican. You know, there was just a lot more. <laughs> it was hard. I mean, it's never been easy for, for Latinos in our business. But I feel like back then it was a little harder. So I just got to a point where I was like, I got to be taking matters into my own hands. You know, I can't let my career be at the whim of other people's opinions or thoughts or tastes of whatever they feel like at that day, because that's sometimes the casting process, frankly. So I um, was like, I'm going to produce a thing. I don't know what it what it's going to be like. I don't know how I'll do it, but I'm just going to do it. And I put it together. And it was a really miraculous time because I manifested literally it into existence. 
the way I got money for the show was the craziest story. So I had met a guy <laughs> playing online poker and it was a tournament for no money. It, it was just something I used to do for fun. And it was like a tournament with 250 people. I played for hours and hours and it became a heads up poker game between me and this guy. We were playing Texas Hold'em. And there was a chat function and it was like, we just chatted and he was, you know, a dad and a football coach and he lived in the East Coast and it was never creepy, by the way. He was perfectly nice. And at the time, I used to write for a blog uh, when that was like a thing you could do for money as a survival job. And so I was like, well, hey, we should stay in touch. Like, I write for this blog. Um, you know, let's keep in touch. So we kind of did loosely. And then one day I was like, you know, let me hit him up. I'm looking for money for a show. Maybe he knows people in his network. So I was like, hey, um, I'm looking for this. I don't know if you can help, uh, but I figured why not ask, right? Can't can't hurt a gal for asking. That's always been my line. What are they going to do? Say no? You're already at a no. So I said, you know, I'm looking for this amount of money. I want to start producing my own work. Here's what I need. I have this. I have that. I have that. I just need blah, blah, blah. Do you know somebody? And he's like, you know what? Actually, I do. And he introduced me to a guy. His name is Cosmo, believe it or not. And I hopped on a call with Cosmo and his wife pitched him what I wanted to do, the show, my passion, how it was my first time doing it, how it's theater in LA, and they would never make their money back. And that if they broke even, it would be a freaking miracle. And they said, yes. And I was like, what? Why? And they said, we just want to have fun. We just want to support people that have passions and, and want to give them their first opportunity because people have done that for us. And I was like, okay, guy named Cosmo, sure. And then later, a week later, a check arrived in the mail, and I still have the little note that that check came in on because it just said, let's have some fun, Cosmo, you know? And that was how I got the first money to do this show that was so important to me that launched me into this, now I pivoted into producing because of this experience. experience. Um, and at the end of it, I asked Cosmo, I was like, well, I here's my budget and I have this amount of money left over and I'm going to return it to you. And he was like, I don't want the money. Keep the money. I was like, well, what? You, you must want something in return. Like nothing is free in America. And he said, I just want you to write me a letter with everything you've learned from this experience, how it's going to help you move forward and how you're going to continue to pass this forward. And And that has always stayed with me. And and I think this podcast is is a part of that seed that was planted. I've always had this desire to help others because I know how hard it was for me to navigate finding my way in this business. As you guys know, I came out here with no contacts, with not a lot of money, and just really hustled and grind, grinded my way into every opportunity that I've been lucky enough to receive. Well, luck because I've worked hard for it, right? Let's be honest. But things have to align, guys. Like, yes, you work hard, but things have to align, I do believe. So I, yeah, I took a big chance on myself. I had no idea if it was going to work out and it was um, a leap, a huge leap. But I learned that when you are intentional and you ask for what you want and you actually have a plan and you present that to the right people, that's how things happen. That's how everything seems to happen in this business. And that was such a great lesson to have that early on in my career. And nothing ever since was as easy to get finance. And certainly like that was a tiny amount of money compared to what it takes to make anything that's obviously a feature or longer format. But it just showed me that it was possible, right? And it was so validating to feel like, 
when I take matters into my own hands as a producer, look at what I can do, look at what I can accomplish. And so that experience will always sit very fondly with me and be a story that I'll continue to tell in hopes that it inspire others to dream big, take those risks and um, bet on yourself because it really, it really can pay off in tremendous ways. So yeah, I think three questions is enough for today. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you have any more thoughts on any of the things I said here, like I said, hit me up angle on producers podcast at gmail.com. And if you don't already, please subscribe to the show it means a lot. Spread the word. Um, and now I want to just end this episode with a very quick chat I had. It's about 20 minutes with Victor, who is the strike captain for the Writers Guild. I will leave you guys on that note. Thank you for tuning in and uh, doing this life thing with me. It, it means a lot. It's not easy for any of us to suit up every day because this business can really beat you down. Um, but I always feel grateful that I have this community of listeners and a fellow producers, dreamers who show up and, and uh, are here with me. So thank you. I really mean it. I'm grateful for you. And I hope you have a good rest of your week. All right. Thank you for, for having me, Carolina. I, I really am. I'm grateful for the opportunity to Talk a little bit about something that I think, uh, whatever side you are on on this issue, whether you know you're a, a creator or a producer, we all feel it. We all understand it. We all understand pain and anxiety and and fear. And so, if we can talk about it, I think it it demystifies quite a bit of what we're all kind of going through, and hopefully, understand each other each other's side a little better. Yeah, no, it's a very anxiety-ridden time in the business today. The Disney announced over 7,000 layoffs and it's just like a mass exodus. And and the thing that's really a huge bummer, Victor, is like the amount of Latino execs that are getting laid off, um, you know, myself included. So it's been a tumultuous um, April, I'd say for many. And now, now as we enter this week, where's the final week to see what's going to happen with the negotiations and if the strike will happen next week, which is obviously it was voted an overwhelming 98% approval. So, you know, I wanted to take this opportunity to hear from an expert in the field, uh, in the subject matter, rather, um, to just kind of understand a little bit more about what it is, what it means, and just kind of break it down for us. Um, so thank you for taking the time to be here and chat with me. I appreciate it. Well, you put it down like, 10 questions. We're going to do this as a three hour podcast here. I love it. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to get us to the, you know, TLDR version of it and hope people can certainly dive in. And, and look, obviously, it's a big issue and we're trying to tackle it in a short amount of time. But yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll just kind of start on sort of the big issues that the, the, the WGA um, feels are are the sort of the, the, the biggest things that are getting in the way of writers like myself being able to really make a living um, in television and, and feature. The first sort of proposal is increasing uh, minimum and minimum compensation significantly throughout for both the feature and TV side. Um, it, it seems like there's been quite a devaluation of writing in many areas, uh, whether it's television, new media, features, and anything in between. And 
-hmm. what the WGA is trying to fight for is so so much content being created. I mean, I think it, last year um, it came out that it was 500 scripted shows had been produced at one point, which is amazing. It's it's amazing for consumers. It's amazing for viewers. It's amazing for audiences. It's amazing for the industry as a whole to have that many uh, productions available to to us all to enjoy. The problem is that inflation comes into play. The minimums that are being paid to writers have not kept up with what the budgets are for some of these productions. Wow. And so across the board, uh, higher minimums is what is being asked for. Uh, another proposal is standardizing compensation and residuals for features, whether they're released in a theater or um, on on demand mm -hmm. in streaming. Mm -hmm. um, because really what exists now, it's, it's a two-tier system. If you write a feature, you sell it to a studio, they decide, yeah, we're going to put it out into the world at 4,000 theaters and the residuals come in for you and the compensation come in to you as the writer. But if that same product that you created for the studios ends up going to a streamer, the compensation that you would get is a, you know, a fraction of what it should be. And so it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for a writer who, who puts the same amount of work into a product to be uh, compensated differently for something that's completely out of our control. In fact, there's been so many occasions where, and I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, a studio decides that they're going to put it out into the theaters, but then changes their mind. Mm -hmm. And so you may have signed on to write a project thinking that you were going to get this opportunity, and then it, the rug gets pulled out from under you, and that's not fair. Third proposal is trying to address the proliferation and abuse of mini rooms. You know, I'm sure many of your listeners already know about mini rooms, but basically what a mini room is, it's a writer's room that is, say, half to a third of what a normal writer's room size would be, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that the studio has greenlit for the showrunner to sort of soft write some episodes. They're trying to get a sense of, do we have you know, enough traction in this show. Give us four episodes mm -hmm. and we'll get a better sense of whether or not we want to green light the rest of the season. Right. The problem with that is we're living in a time when full seasons can be as few as six episodes. So if a studio is green lighting a mini room for four episodes to pre be pre-written and you're getting four writers instead of 12, let's say, or four instead of even eight, you're already giving a studio almost everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you're lucky and have a show that has 10 episodes, then great. You still have some breathing room there. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's be honest, how many shows out there do we know that have 10 episodes ordered? Most of them are six to eight. Um, and so trying to find some way of balancing out what the studio wants to do with, with these kinds of rooms, which... We understand that, you know, there's, there is a time and a place for doing this, but not abusing the mechanism, you know, because it just feels like any show and every show can be a mini room moving forward. Right. 
it's almost like a replacement for the real thing, right? Instead of a a tee up to the exactly a preamble to the to the big big game, it's just like it's it's like in lieu of. So exactly. But I have a question on that. You know, I I think what I'm so curious is on sometimes nowadays the model has changed where some shows are literally written by like two people, like whole seasons of shows. Right? You had like Game of Thrones was this way, which are exceptions to the rule. But do you think that there should be um instead of it being mandated, it should be sort of on a case by case, because what if some projects hypothetically should still get a full room, but they do benefit maybe from having less writers. So instead of like imposing a minimum amount of writers, like, would you as the showrunner be able to say, all right, like, I think this room is going to be at its best with six people because of the contents of this show, or I really only want three people on my team for this particular show. Like, do you think there's a space for that kind of conversation to exist or is the way contracts are set up not so much in the gray it kind of is more black and white i'll speak for myself i'm not going to speak for the writers guild when i say this right of course (laughs) i think that there could be a bit more flexibility for example i think white lotus uh was written by by just the the showrunner mike yeah there has to be a balance again you know based on budgets based on what if White Lotus is getting right. quite a considerable amount of monies for the writing portion of it, absolutely. It's Mike's idea or, you know, he's creating it and all. Just to give you an example, yeah, and yeah. I'm just taking this show as an example. It's an anthology where every season goes to a different location. And I do believe, this is my my personal thinking as a person of color, as a person who has a lived experience that is different from Mike's there is some benefit to having other voices in a room in a place you're setting where you do not know that culture. And I don't know Mike. He could be an expert in Thailand, Italy, Hawaii, and every other place that it will be created. Right. But I have a feeling that he isn't. And I honestly, in my heart of hearts, believe that there is nothing that is lost in having writers who understand culture, an experience, a location that the creator doesn't have. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point that you make. Um, and some could could argue, could that show have been even more successful had it had these different POVs being layered in there, right? It was already such a brilliant concept, but yeah. It's absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. At the end of the day, a showrunner is the boss. You could get all these opinions and say, thank you, I will take 10% of what I heard. In my experience, in the writer's rooms that I've been in, it's always the seed of an idea that later on, with the help of the showrunner and the rest of the room, can be taken to a completely different place. Yeah. It just seems like a lot for a show to go on and on season after season with just one person writing it. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's two other big points, which is we're trying to make sure that we expand band protections to cover all television series. For anyone who's not familiar with what span protection is, it's basically a a protection that's given to writer producers. So it's more the upper level writers. You know, they are contracted by studios to work on a show, but there seems to be quite a bit of abuse on the end of the Mm -hmm. studios um, in terms of the time that they, that they force the showrunners to work on the shows um, past the time that they, had allotted for themselves to be on it. So as an example, the proposal is that if you're a showrunner producer, Mm. you should 
uh, work two and a half, 2.4 weeks on an episode of a show. Because if you had a 10 episode order for a season, that would be 24 weeks that you're working on this show. 24 weeks is half a year, right? You're working on these 10 episodes. But the studio might say, we, we need to work more on it. We need uh, edits on this. We need rewrites on that, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The lower level writers would get compensated if you bring them back. But the writer producer right now doesn't get any extra compensation. Mm, it's almost it. like it's on a buyout sort of Correct. deal yeah, right now. Exactly. And you're trying to compensate them fairly for the actual week's worked versus this sort of yeah. system. Yeah, that makes and sense. So, and so they're just saying like, look, we understand. Can we give give it an allotted time? And then if it goes past that time, we'll we'll compensate the writer producers for that extra time that they're giving the, the giving us the studios for that. Mm-hmm. The last one I would say is applying uh, the minimums that we have, the MBAs, which are the minimum based agreements for comedy variety programs. A lot of the late night programming that exists um, doesn't have a minimum at all. Like you could literally hire those writers and pay them minimum wage mm-hmm. in whatever state. Wow, I didn't know that. They are writers, just like any other writer. And I mean, I understand. I used to work in late night television. I used to work for a show called Noches con Platanito, which is a bilingual show. So I understand mm-hmm. the the plight that my um, late night colleagues in uh, the general market go through because it's it's hard. You know, it's hard to come up with jokes, monologues, interviews, uh, produce it night after night after night after night. And to be at the whim of whatever the studio wants to pay you without a minimum doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Yeah. So more than anything, that is kind of the the, the gist of the proposals. Yeah. Um, and the last one I would say, that this, is, this is something that also is important, especially for me as a lower writer. A lot of productions are not bringing, now because of COVID, they've said, well, we don't need to have the entire team there. If we have the showrunner and uh, number two and Corey P, that that's enough. But really, the way that it's always existed in the television, especially, is that you really learn from being on set. Right. I mean, you know this, Carolina. You- yeah, no, you learn from doing it. And it, I get what you're saying. If they're taking away the opportunity for lower level writers to get to be on set for their episodes or cover set for someone else, you're you're already creating a gap between exactly. their knowledge and their ability to elevate themselves in in the in the room and in their career frankly by keeping them away from those opportunities cuz then you go well you haven't covered sets so eh, we really need someone who but then you start getting caught in that catch 22 of like well how am i going to get that experience if you don't let me come to set to get it so i totally understand that's not okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah so those are the things and and what's at stake for writers everything Writers like myself are being asked to give of their time day after day, year after year, uh, without really knowing, first of all, if they're going to have work in the future, what those uh, salaries that we get paid are going to cover, the time frame that that's going to cover, you know, what kind of um, conditions we're going to be in. I think there's just a lot of elements biggest problem right now for writers is that it's feeling more and more like writing is becoming a gig industry Mm -hmm. where you're trying to get the next gig that's going to be hopefully a mini room that has an order of or whatever even if it's if it's a full room that got greenlit right coming off the tails of a mini room 
Now it has 10 weeks that you're going to have employment, 10 to 12 weeks. I know a lot of friends who are in this situation. Mm. It used to be 2015, even as recently, maybe as 10 years ago, when streaming wasn't as prolific. That shows had 20 episodes, 24 episodes. You know, you had full rooms. Writers could really make a life for themselves. Right. I mean, we're talking about not survival money that you get 10 weeks of work and then you're hoping... Hope against hope that right. that will keep you going for the next four or five, maybe even a year before you see the next 10 weeks. And um, and that's not what it used to be like. And I, we, we totally as writers understand that things change, but there has to be some kind of balance so that we are not taking second jobs just to survive doing what we love to do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's good that we as a, as writers are showing our strength in numbers, that we are um, practicing our sort of democratic values by going out there and voting. I, I think it's good for, for not only the studios, but for ourselves to really understand that it's not going to be handed to us, you know, mm-hmm. that if we really want it, we have to fight for it. Well, nothing ever is in Hollywood, you know. That's the thing you learn, right? There are no handouts. You gotta, you gotta like claw your way to every opportunity, to everything <laughs> that you believe you're owed. <laughs> and I, I mean, I for one appreciate that you do this. I went to film school, but you're not taught the business of film school in film school. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, you- no one teaches you this stuff. You just literally learn by figuring it out and talking to other people and getting knocked down. Frankly, yeah. sometimes I feel like that's why what makes Hollywood so hard to navigate is that you have to get the blows your own way to like learn them even if people sometimes do tell you verbatim like you still have to go and hit your head against the wall you earn your stripes by having gotten down knocked down enough times and and with the years that pass the people at the top going oh shit you're still here it's been 15 years we've like knocked you down x amount of times but you're still grinding it out all right, come on in. I guess we'll give you a chance, you know? Yeah. But it takes resilience to show up and suit up and do this every day. We just got to keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. I'm staying optimistic that the strike doesn't last too long. I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm very optimistic. And, you know, I think we can, we can probably find a middle ground for all of these things. Something that feels fair and reasonable, which is yeah, what yeah. the WGA is is really honestly trying to just get there and reason. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, honestly, for taking the time and just breaking it down, Victor. Yeah, as a WJ strike captain, I'm honored to be here on your show and and wish 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 us all the best. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.